So after a full day of relative ease and relaxation, I hope that offered you a slightly more humane transition into the more formal opening of the retreat now. And I don't know about for you, but for me at this point in the retreat, I often have a feeling of almost a little fluttery excitement, like we're about to start off on a journey, a journey somewhere new. So rather than an outer journey, it's an inner journey, this powerful opportunity to explore our hearts and minds in the service of ever-deepening freedom which is actually the overarching theme of this retreat. So I don't know how many people even knew what the title of this retreat is. Oh, wow. Sometimes I think we write these things and it just kind of disappears into the ether. It's actually called Freedom Here and Now. Hopefully you're okay with signing up for that. (laughs) So freedom is the goal of all the Buddha's teachings. Uh, where it's known as Nibbana or Nirvana, also translated as awakening or enlightenment, liberation or freedom. And the freedom that's being pointed to here includes freedom from afflictive states, such as anger, fear, sadness, greed, despair, and so on. And also freedom to live with greater ease, happiness, authenticity, and so on. Now, the word freedom might sound like a lofty goal to some of you. So I chose the the retreat title of Freedom Here and Now to point towards the truth that this freedom isn't some abstract, remote, esoteric experience that might possibly happen in the far-off distant future. Instead, it's available to us in any moment when we understand how to stop clinging, craving, resisting experience, which again might sound very simple in theory, but in actual practice does take practice. So here we are at the start of that whole exploration, at the start of our metaphorical journey. And just like with any journey, we're going to be covering a pretty wide range of terrain. As most of you have experienced, different phases of the retreat were likely to encounter different metaphorical landscapes and different metaphorical weather systems. So at first it might feel like we're still stuck in the suburbs, walking along concrete footpaths past ordinary houses down cul-de-sacs and not really getting anywhere. But as the retreat progresses and we start to leave the suburbs behind, We start to get more varied terrain. And sometimes it can feel like we're slogging through dense bush in torrential rain on a path that's deep in sticky mud. At other times, we might find ourselves climbing a steep mountainside in the fog, navigating along scree slopes, three steps forward and one back. And at other times we might find ourselves strolling across open grasslands with a gentle breeze on our backs and the warm sun on our faces. So the point of this metaphor is that no matter where we find ourselves on this journey, every terrain we encounter 
is an opportunity to learn new skills and to strengthen old ones. And through this process, we start to access our inner resources, our inner treasures, qualities such as calm and clarity and wisdom and compassion. And these are qualities that sadly are mostly in short supply in the world out there. But here on retreat, we have a very precious opportunity to develop and strengthen these skillful qualities. So by calm, I mean that basic quality of non-reactivity, of stability and stillness that we started cultivating this afternoon and that allows our agitated nervous systems to deeply rest. And when we are able to rest for long enough in these states of calm, a deep clarity naturally starts to emerge. We see ourselves and the world more and more clearly instead of through the distorted lenses of our usual habitual reactivity. And then from that clear seeing, from that insight, wisdom, compassion naturally develops because we understand the truth of the human condition. We're all in the same boat. And as one teacher said, that boat is sinking. So this is part of our human experience, that we're all subject to life's myriad challenges. We all long to be happy. And we start to realize that we're not alone. And the more we care about our own pain, distress and suffering, the easier it is to care for others too. And perhaps surprisingly, it's this capacity to be with suffering that brings the deepest happiness, ease and peace, which then becomes a resource that benefits everyone we come into contact with. So that's a very brief overview of this journey that we're starting out on tonight. And to keep extending and hopefully not stretching too far this metaphor of the journey, there are a few supports that can really help us along the way. And like with any journey, having a good guide is very helpful. So we're very fortunate to have the Buddha as our guide. If he hadn't done this trailblazing all those thousands of years ago in India, none of us would be sitting here tonight at Te Moata. All of you have done several retreats before, so you might have some sense of just how incredible it is that the Buddha was able to work this all out for himself. He didn't have anyone to show him the way, but through his own diligence, perseverance, determination, he did work out how to access the deepest possible freedom of heart and mind. So we're fortunate to be able to follow in his footsteps, unfortunate that he left a very good map of the way. So touching back to the theme of generosity that we were exploring all day today, I wonder if you can connect with some sense of appreciation for just the fact that the Buddha did find a path to freedom and that he left all kinds of instructions, practices, signposts, maybe navigation beacons that can help us follow that same path. 
So to put it in traditional terms, these teachings are known as the Dharma. And again, we might take a moment just to appreciate that we do have those teachings, that we have this very holistic path that the Buddha laid out. Because without it, we might find ourselves wandering for a very long time, putting a lot of effort into the journey, but never getting closer to the destination of freedom. And then lastly, as a further support for this journey, we also have our fellow travelers. All of us together here on this retreat are providing companionship along the way. Just by our presence in the silence, we offer each other moral support and inspiration when the going gets tough. And I'd like to emphasize that just as we receive that support from each other, we're also offering it too by how we show up. How we show up here matters. Practicing with respect for ourselves, respect for each other is a powerful gift. It's the gift of Sangha, which as many of you know is the third of what are known in the Buddha's teachings as the three Jewels, the jewels of the Buddha, the Dharma, his teachings, and the Sangha, the community of people who are following those teachings. So the Buddha is our guide, the Dharma is the map along the way, and the Sangha is our community of traveling companions. So today we've had the relative luxury of taking a full day to explore generosity Dana as the gift and chaga as the underlying motivation of open-heartedness that generosity springs from. So hopefully after that full day of exploration you have a clear sense now of just why the Buddha began his teachings with dana. And so last night I briefly mentioned that the Buddha also spoke about the second aspect of the path, sila, as being an aspect of dana, of generosity. So sila is a Pali word which means ethical conduct, paying attention to our behavior to make sure that it's grounded in non-harming. And as most of you know, it's traditional at the start of a retreat like this to make a formal commitment to this non-harming by reciting what are known as the five training precepts. And I'm going to say a bit more about these five precepts soon, but just to begin with, I'd like to zoom out a bit and give a sense, a bit more context about how sila, ethical training, fits in the overall path of the teachings. So the Buddha laid out a gradual system of training known as the Noble Eightfold Path. And in that path, he highlighted three aspects of our lives that we need to develop together. The first of these is sila, the ethical conduct. The second is samadhi, that stability of mind, uh, non-distractability, which refers to the concentration types of meditation. And the third is panya, or wisdom, which includes vipassana, insight meditation. And these three, sila, samadhi, and panya, or ethical conduct, 
stability of mind and wisdom, insight, are said to be like the three legs of a stool. We need them to be equally well-developed for us to stay in balance. So I wanted to emphasize the importance of cultivating all three of these aspects of the path to freedom, and particularly the leg of the tripod that is sila, because I have a, a perception that in some ways it's the one that, at least in lay centers, is not paid quite as much attention to. And I wonder if that's because when the Dharma first came to the West, there was a sense that all you needed to do was just meditate hard enough, deep enough, long enough, and eventually, poof, all of your problems would just vanish in a magical cloud. And perhaps because these teachings really took off in the West in the 1960s, there was perhaps a cultural context at that time of rebellion against conventional morality of the time. Now, I wasn't quite... Uh, old enough to to be part of that myself, so I can't speak from personal experience, but in terms of what we see in the media and have read about, it was the era of free love and all that. So being told about these five ethical trainings at that time, when it was a, a more permissive attitude was starting to develop, then there might have been some naivety or even wishful thinking back then that we can do anything we like without any fear of consequences. And so it took quite a while before people started to understand that actually meditation doesn't happen in a vacuum. What we do off the cushion outside of retreat impacts what we experience when we meditate. On one level, that's pretty obvious. So if we're doing all kinds of harmful stuff off the cushion, then when we come to meditate, that stuff is going to very directly impact our ability to calm the mind, to steady the awareness, to develop clarity and to see clearly with wisdom. So having said all that, I also want to acknowledge that for many people, including myself, this whole topic of morality can bring up unease, especially when the word sila is translated as morality. For many of us, that's a loaded word. And in mainstream Western society, morality is often approached in a very black and white way. It brings up notions of right and wrong and good and bad and saint and sinner and so on. And often there's a sense that there's some kind of external authority who's going to judge whether our behavior is right and good and saintly or wrong and bad and sinful. And then by extension, we tend to identify with that and brand ourselves as right and wrong. So this kind of morality is very much associated with obedience, with punishment, with obligation and with external judgment. So it's not surprising that we would feel some resistance to being made to feel wrong or bad in some way. Or the opposite, we might feel afraid of being seen as self-righteous or superior or repressed or a goody-two-shoes or whatever it might be. So there are many negative associations that we might unconsciously bring to this concept of sila. 
So the first step is just to investigate for ourselves, as we did with Dana today, what are the ideas or beliefs or assumptions that might be underlying our relationship to this aspect of the path. So by contrast uh, to the Western approach, the the Buddha's approach is really pretty different. So if we think of the metaphor of the carrot and the stick, Western morality tends to be very much stick-driven, whereas the Buddha was much more coming from the carrot approach. And he kept emphasizing throughout the teachings the happiness that comes from behaving skillfully. So many of you are familiar with the very first lines of the Dhammapada, where he talks about how we create our own realities for good or for bad by what we think and say and do. And all of that starts with the mind. So it says, all experiences preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experiences preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. So to me, it's striking that in these opening lines of the Dhammapada, the Buddha is not asking us to rely on outside authorities to tell us how to live. He doesn't even ask us to refer back to him as an authority. Instead, we're encouraged to develop our own inner ethical compass and learn to discern for ourselves what the wisest course of action is, what leads to happiness and what leads to suffering. Which is not to say that the Buddha didn't set minimum standards, and this is where the five training precepts come in. They're designed to help protect us from the most obvious aspects of unskillful behavior. So I sometimes think of them as being like the life-saving flags they put out on the beach. You know, stick between these flags and you won't get taken away too far. You won't go too far off course. So in the way the precepts are usually presented, they're a kind of a not-to-do list, a list of what not to do. In short, don't kill, don't steal, don't misbehave sexually, don't lie, don't take intoxicants. And it can be easy when we come on retreat to take that for granted. I'm going to make a big assumption here that none of us recently have egregiously transgressed any of these precepts. So we can tend to think, oh yeah, of course I'm not going to kill things, of course I'm not going to steal anything, I'm not going to misuse my sexuality and so on, and just sort of almost blow it off. But I really would like to encourage us to keep looking at what these precepts are pointing to, because like every other aspect of the Buddha's teachings, they can be endlessly refined. And even on the most basic level, not to take that for granted, In my own life, I was fortunate to spend five years doing some volunteer work in a prison in the U.S. 
And at the time, I was living on staff at the Insight Meditation Society. And probably like here, everyone who comes to the Insight Meditation Society is expected to take the five precepts. So there is that shared commitment to ethical conduct. So I was used to living in that kind of environment. And then every Sunday I would go to the prison and it was a very different kind of environment. So the guys who came to the group were very much in alignment with the precepts. But in the general prison population, not so much. And there were some of the men were actively looking for ways to break the precepts at any opportunity they could find. So you may be able to imagine or perhaps you've had some experience of what kind of climate that sets up. Very difficult to practice in. So to just really appreciate, even though they might seem invisible at times, that there is this power in having the commitment to non-harming. And the Buddha talked about sila as a gift, as I mentioned last night. It's a, I'd like to read you some of the actual language. It's a little complex, a little old-fashioned, but sometimes hearing the actual words from the discourses gives you a bit more of a nuanced flavor. So in the Abhisandha Sutta, the Buddha says, there are these five gifts, five great gifts, original, long-standing, traditional, ancient, unadulterated, that are not open to suspicion, will never be open to suspicion, and are unfaulted by knowledgeable contemplatives and priests. Which five? There is the case where a disciple of the noble ones, abandoning the taking of life, abstains from taking life. In doing so, one gives freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless numbers of beings. In giving freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless numbers of beings, one gains a share in that freedom. That freedom from danger, from animosity and oppression. This is the first gift, the first great gift. And then he describes similar freedoms in relation to the other four precepts too. And I wanted to read that passage because it really highlights how we ourselves benefit in gaining a share of the freedom from danger, animosity and oppression. Because if we haven't harmed anyone in any way, we don't need to live in fear of being caught, fear of being caught or punished or blamed or shamed or having someone take revenge on us. And we might even experience what the Buddha referred to over and over as the bliss of blamelessness. The bliss of blamelessness. So this is where keeping the precepts becomes a very powerful support for our meditation practice. So remembering the three legs of the tripod, sila, ethical conduct comes first, followed by samadhi or stability of mind, followed by panya or wisdom and insight. And samadhi meditation is aimed at cultivating deep stability of mind so that the mind becomes very gathered, one-pointed, still, 
unwavering and calm. But pretty common sense, if our minds are agitated by remorse and anger and worry and blame and anxiety and shame from having acted unskillfully, it's going to be pretty difficult to let the mind settle into samadhi. And without some degree of stability of mind, insights won't arise. And it'll be harder to come to the panya or wisdom aspect of the path. So these three aspects of the path of sila and samadhi and panya all reinforce and strengthen each other in a kind of chain reaction. But it doesn't stop at wisdom because that same wisdom then feeds back into our ethical conduct and refines it. And we, as I say, clean up our act a little bit more. And because we have a more refined awareness, we can settle into more refined samadhi. And because the samadhi and the stability of mind is steadier, the depth of wisdom also increases. And so these three keep spiraling around and around and around each other. Now, maybe that sounds a little bit abstract, but if you think back over the course of your own life, you might actually see that positive feedback loop playing out. And again, I'm going to make a huge assumption, so apologies if this is not accurate. But I'm guessing that there were maybe things you did when you were in your teenage years or young adult years that you probably wouldn't do now. Is that true? Anyone think of any particular examples? So right there, there's some wisdom, right? There's some understanding, there's some maturity, some perspective that's been gained. So that's a big leap. But you might even think back a couple of years and maybe in the beginning of your practice there were things that you thought, "Mm, it's a little bit marginal, but what the hell, everybody does it, it's okay. And then a year or two goes by and you think, no, that's not the good thing to be doing. And then maybe another year or two goes by and it doesn't even cross your mind to consider doing it. Does that ring true for people? So even perhaps without consciously naming it in that way, you can get a sense that this interplay of sila and samadhi and panya, this positive feedback loop, is working in all of our lives. And we can support that by making this formal commitment to ethical conduct. So I ran through very briefly what the five precepts are. First is not to intentionally kill living beings. The second is not to take what hasn't been offered, or in other words, not to steal. The third is to avoid sexual misconduct, which means in ordering life, not misusing our sexual energy in ways that cause harm. And on retreat, it means maintaining celibacy, so refraining from any kind of sexual activity. The fourth precept is to avoid false speech, not lying or harsh speech. And on retreat, it means uh, committing to noble silence. And then the fifth precept is to avoid taking intoxicants of any kind. And again, that doesn't include prescription medication. So as that's a very brief overview And as I've been emphasizing, as the practice develops, our understanding of the precepts can become more and more refined. 
and they start to move from refraining from unskillful action towards the other side of the scale, actively cultivating skillful action. So we can frame the precepts also in a in their positive expression. So, for example, the first precept to refrain from killing beings, killing living beings can be expressed positively as committing to act with reverence for all forms of life. And so this dedication to non-harming becomes an expression of profound compassion. It's no longer just avoiding harmful behavior, but directly cultivating the support and directly moving towards the relief of suffering. And in a similar way, the second precept, to refrain from taking what has not been offered, can be expressed positively as the commitment to practice contentment with what we have. And we can see this as an, a- an aspect of renunciation or relinquishment, letting go of greed or desire for what belongs to others. We can also see it as an aspect of gratitude, of appreciation for what we do have. So rather than focusing on a sense of lack, we can really orient to what we actually have. So in this way, the commitment to not steal can be refined to cultivating an attitude of open-handed generosity and contentment. And then the third precept to refrain from misusing our sexual energy in ways that cause harm in its positive expression becomes cultivating respect for our own and others' relationships. And in the context of a retreat where this precept is about maintaining celibacy, it's an opportunity just to notice perhaps some of those habitual patterns we have around sexual energy, which can be very deeply conditioned. So rather than feeding those patterns, seeing if we can meet them instead with kindness and compassion, can we let go of the pressure to behave in certain ways or to perform or to take on roles or present ourselves according to superficial standards of attractiveness, for example? And can we see this as a gift that we offer to other people and to ourselves to just let other people be rather than trying to get their attention or be something for them? So this precept is usually talked about in terms of sexual energy, but on retreat we can refine it to think in terms of our social energy and particularly in relation to noble silence. So we can bring mindfulness to those times when there is the urge just to connect with someone, to communicate, to be seen, to be recognized, to be acknowledged, to have our loneliness soothed or to have just that little moment of eye contact or a shared experience of some kind. And rather than feeding the hunger that might be driving that, to meet that with kindness and compassion so that it doesn't leak out and impact our own or other people's noble silence. So this then shades into the fourth precept, which on retreat is in daily life is to refrain from false speech and on retreat is to really commit to noble silence which obviously means not talking 
but as I mentioned yesterday, also not reading or writing, except for brief notes about your practice or notes in the talks. And the idea here is that we're trying to come out of our habitual, cognitive, more intellectual-driven way of being in the world and drop the energy and the attention into a more embodied, intuitive kind of wisdom. So Noble Silence also includes relinquishing the use of mobile phones and technology. And I know for myself just how powerful technology can be, so much so that these days some teachers include this um, technology and devices in the category of intoxicants because we can have that sort of compulsive relationship to them. So here on retreat, I know um, we're going to be handing our phones in in a moment, in in a moment if you would like to but just to see that again as a gift that we're offering to ourselves and the community because you might think that no one will notice if you send a quick text here or there or just check the weather or whatever you like to do but it agitates the mind and in the same way again many of you know each other and you have beautiful connections outside of here but if you get caught in just a little chat here or a little bit of a joke there or whatever it might be, it might seem harmless, but it sets ripples into the stillness of the mind for yourself and for others. And it may seem like the other person is responding and is fine with it, but in the teacher role, I often get to hear the other side where people feel sort of pressured or awkward that if they don't respond they'll think their friend is snubbing them or so they feel compelled to engage so again just to hopefully have everyone be on the same page it's a lot simpler if we all share that same commitment so there's one other aspect of this practice of um, looking at our speech that can become very powerful on retreat and that's really starting to pay attention in the silence to our inner dialogue, to listen to how we're talking to ourselves. Because if we're serious about this commitment to unharmful speech, it can be shocking sometimes to hear how we talk to ourselves. Sometimes we say things inwardly with a tone of voice and a language that we would never use to anybody external. So if we're serious about keeping this precept, it can be very interesting to bring that to our inner language also. So on, in its positive expression, this, um, this becomes the commitment to silence and to really try to orient to speech that is calm and kind and compassionate and clear. And then finally, the fifth precept, the one about refraining from taking intoxicants. Again, it's on one level pretty straightforward. But in terms of um, avoiding intoxicants, we can really look at where does our attention get pulled? What do we consume? What do we ingest? What do we take in to our bodies and minds? 
And so that's again why some teachers use devices under this, include devices under this precept. So here on retreat, we have a very powerful and rare opportunity to put aside most of those things that we tend to be addicted to and see if we can relate, develop a more healthy relationship to them. So the precepts can become more and more refined, more and more broad, and more and more an act of powerful generosity. And I see that particularly these days in relation to the planet, in relation to our communities, our societies, and the environment as a whole. Because given the current climate crisis, we can consider these precepts in relation to the bigger picture of how are we living every aspect of our lives. And if we're really committed to non-harming, then using that lens of the precepts to see, is what I'm doing harmful to the earth, to Papa Tuanuku? So some of you might know the well-known Vietnamese meditation teacher, Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, and his rewriting of these um, precepts as mindfulness trainings. And he really expands them into a very holistic practice. I don't have time to go into each of them tonight, but just to get a sense of, of how he does that, just how much these precepts can be expanded and refined, I'll read you the fifth one that he's reframed in relation to intoxicants. He says, Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption, I'm committed to cultivating good health, both physical and mental, for myself, my family, and my society by practicing mindful eating, drinking, and consuming. I am determined not to try to cover up loneliness, anxiety, or other suffering by losing myself in consumption. I will contemplate interbeing and consume in a way that preserves peace, joy, and well-being in my body and consciousness and in the collective body and consciousness of my family, my society, and the earth. So that about covers it. He doesn't leave anything out there, just in that one precept. So for some of you, that might be inspiring. For others, it might be a little daunting. So again, just to remember that this is a whole lifetime of practice, a whole lifetime of exploration, and that these are very definitely training precepts. And the idea is that they're undertaken voluntarily as a support for our practice here on retreat. So I'd like to invite us to recite them together now, if you feel moved to do that. And if you don't, it's fine to just sit in silence and listen and find your own way of expressing some kind of commitment to non-harming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.